All right, John 21. So let's remember, you're looking for themes and storylines that are taken from other chapters in John's gospel. Not to get sidetracked on that and lose sight of what's on the page, but just have that in the back of your mind. Verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for his work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So John calls this the Sea of Tiberias. It's actually the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias is the Roman name, and that would probably have been the name his readers, his Gentile readers would have been a little more familiar with. So one day, Peter goes out fishing, and since many of the apostles were fishermen, six more decide to join Peter. So there's seven altogether. It appears that this is more than merely recreation. They appear to have returned to their old profession of fishing, which they had before Jesus came along in the first place. So it would seem that they lack an appreciation for the new commission or they're not eager to get started with it, one or the other. Knowing how much the apostles did to spread the early church, isn't it remarkable to think they were dragging their feet at first in doing that job? It would have seemed that without this visit by Christ, they never would have left to preach and care for the church. Now, of course, we know that wasn't going to satisfy Christ. So he makes this appearance to make sure they stick to the plan. And the plan is they have to continue the work Jesus began. This, by the way, is a reminder to us all that we are ambassadors and we are witnesses for Christ. And some of us may be called into greater degrees of service. But we aren't just here on earth killing time waiting for the kingdom. We aren't supposed to set our sights on grand earthly achievement or excessive wealth or even security and tranquility. We all like those things. But pursuing them runs counter to pursuing our mission to serve Christ on earth. So we live here to present the Lord to a lost and dying world, perishing in their sin. And you only have a limited amount of time to do that. So every day counts. Christ pulled them away from the net three years ago for good reason. And now they've settled in for the old lifestyle again. In a very real sense, these guys look like a lot of Christians today who have come to know the Lord, but they're too busy with the world to get busy with the ministry God may have for them in some respect. Thank the Lord that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so Jesus isn't going to let them become satisfied in fishing the sea. So notice as the story goes, they spend the night entirely on the water attempting to fish and they catch nothing. You think that's coincidence? Do you think their frustrations at pursuing this earthly life were merely bad luck on a given night? Or do you think perhaps the Lord was restraining the success they sought because he did not want them to be satisfied in the wrong line of work. Notice also they are fishing in the dark at night. As you've seen over and over again, John emphasizes darkness as a picture of sin and unbelief and the enemy and rebellion. So they work in darkness and they go nowhere. Then Jesus appears on the shore of the sea 
though they don't recognize him, he appears at daybreak. This is the last recorded appearance of Jesus before his ascension in Acts chapter 1. And this event had to have happened somewhere in the 32 days between his appearance on the 8th day and his ascension on the 40th day, according to Acts chapter 1. So between Thomas and here, or Thomas and Acts 1, you got 32 days. This happens somewhere in those 32 days. Jesus addresses them with a Greek word that means young boy or lad, as if to suggest you're playing games as children, pretending to be like adults. And he points out to them, you know, don't seem to have any fish. And then Jesus gives them some helpful advice, lower the nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find fish. Now, you remember a similar moment, right? It happened three years earlier. It's recorded in Luke's gospel, Luke 5. As Jesus was calling those men the first time, he found them fishing, a similar number in the boat fishing. They weren't having any luck on that particular day either. He instructs them to put their nets in the water. And when they did, they had this great harvest. And back then he did it to show that he had power and that they were inadequate. And here he shows the same thing a second time. At that time, in the first encounter, he told them, drop their nets after they brought in that haul of fish and follow me instead, which they all did, which would have been a courageous thing, if not impulsive. It led them to see and experience miraculous things as they followed Jesus around. Right. They never regretted dropping that sack of fish in order to watch Jesus do what he did. And yet here they are on the boats again. They still needed to make a commitment to follow Christ. So when Jesus tells them to lower their nets again, I wonder if any of them sensed deja vu in that moment. They do as Jesus directed. Immediately the net is filled to the point they can't even pull it back into the boat. And at seeing the full nets, John is the first to remember the earlier time, and he puts two and two together. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. Immediately, Peter puts his robe back on, dives into the water. Now, fishermen characteristically work in their undergarments, which were shorter underneath robes. And so Peter puts on his outer garment back to full clothing, and then he jumps in the water. Now, normally people strip down before they jump into the water, rather than adding more clothes on top. John's description adds to the sense of Peter's chaotic thinking. You know, they put all my clothes back on, and then it says he throws himself into the water. This is such a classic picture of the two men, because notice, John is usually the one with the quick insight, but slow to act. He won't go into the tomb, right? But he's the first one there. Peter is usually the one to act boldly, if impulsively. And even John's choice of words here suggests impulsiveness because he says he threw himself into the sea. It's not even a coordinated dive. If only we could combine these two personalities into one person, they would be perfect. I love this, too. The rest of the disciples see no reason to plunge into the sea. They say, we're not that far anyway. Let's just go to the shore in the boat. I don't know what Peter's up to. It's just... (laughs) You didn't really have to do that, Peter. We were almost there. And in fact... Peter's choice to plunge into the water leaves them with the trouble of having to bring all the fish in without his help. John's description seems to emphasize Peter's impulsiveness to leave the disciples with the labor and without his help, even though they only have a short distance to cover, right? Again, I think John just loves to take little jabs at Peter all the way through his gospel. Verse 9, so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
So they reach the shore. They secure the nest with the fish. Jesus and Peter are already there, of course, because Peter you know, swam in. And there's a small charcoal fire burning, and they're cooking. And that's very interesting because there's fish on the fire. Now, when Jesus first greeted them from the shore, he asked them, you haven't caught any fish today, have you? And they said, no. So there were no fish on the shore. Furthermore, the boat that had the fish shows up after there's already fish cooking on the fire. So where did that fish come from? And then there was also bread. Where do you think the bread came from? Same place the fish came from. So Jesus is serving a meal of bread and fish to the disciples after they return from the fishing trip. And as Jesus is serving his disciples, they bring the net up on the shore and they begin to count the fish. And they count 153 fish. Now, the count of fish is a matter of a lot of speculation. The number is oddly specific, and yet it doesn't relate to any biblical pattern or event that we know of. Now, when a number isn't part of a pattern, you should avoid trying to create one. That's just a good, safe rule. So why is it so specific? Well, to make too much of this is to miss the bigger point that John is making. The fact that the men took time to count the fish is reflected in the specificity of the number. He's not estimating it. They counted. The fact that they counted is evidence of the significance of the catch. Most men don't sit around and count how many fish when they're in a business of catching fish by nets. Unless it's a record haul. Fishermen love numbers when it's a record haul. The fact that it has led them to count tells us the extraordinary nature of the catch because we don't know the size of the net. Secondly, the number represents the bounty of God's harvest when these men fish under his direction. Just the mere fact that it's so large spoke to the disciples about the potential benefit about working, of working under the Lord's commission. Because if the Lord could assure that kind of catch in the sea, imagine what he's prepared to accomplish in building his own kingdom. After all seven disciples are present, the Lord takes the bread and breaks it, gives it out to his disciples along with the fish. He says, none of them say, who are you? Because they know it's Jesus. Well, if that's true, why did he have to insert that comment? The reason he inserts that comment is apparently, I think, because the resurrected appearance of Jesus is so different that you couldn't recognize him on the basis of his physical appearance alone. So imagine looking at someone who doesn't look like someone you know, but you know him to be someone you know. It's that problem. They only recognize him at all based on the familiarity of his words and his actions. So when he says something or does something they recognize, well, then they know him by his voice. And in this moment, they know him because he breaks the bread and the fish in a manner that they recognize. John says this is the third appearance of Jesus, counting the two that have happened already in Jerusalem. Three appearances suggests divine appointment. It's the number for the Trinity, the number of the fullness of the Godhead working together. And in this third appearance, Jesus turns to Peter to complete the restoration of Peter following his denial at the trial. Verse 15, he says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger and you used to gird yourself, you walked wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. After the meal, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? 
more than these. First, let's look at the word love. The word love for Jesus uses here is the Greek word agape, which does not mean emotional love or brotherly love. Rather, it is the word for self-sacrificial devotion to another person. So agape love means putting another person's interests and needs before your own. Agape can be accompanied by other forms of love, like brotherly love or familial love, but it's equally possible to show agape love to someone that you detest. And there's probably more than a few marriages that have existed that way. So when Jesus says love, he speaks in the term of agape. Are you willing to sacrifice yourself for something greater than you, for something else? And then he says, then these, love me more than these. Well, who's he referencing? Well, some have concluded he's referring to the other six disciples, as in, do you love me more than you love your brothers? Or some have said, maybe he means, do you love me more than they love me? I think those interpretations are unnatural. And they ignore the context and the subsequent instructions of Christ in this text. In my view, these have to refer to the fish in the net because that's the focus of the context of this chapter. Christ is asking Peter, are you more devoted to me than you are to catching fish? Or more specifically, to your business, to your self-interest in fishing? Was Peter prepared to set aside his fishing business, his lifestyle as a fisherman, and the security that it gave him and the freedom and the independence that comes with being self-employed to serve the Lord? Peter answers quickly, even indignantly, saying yes all three times, to which Jesus replies three different ways. He says, tend my lambs. The word tend in Greek is literally the word for feed. So Jesus asked Peter to feed my baby sheep. Then in the second time, he asks, the words are different. The second and third time, the, the words are slightly different each time in Greek. Jesus uses the Greek word for lamb and then moves to the Greek word for sheep. He starts with the Greek word for feed and then turns to the Greek word shepherd and then back to the Greek word feed again. So by varying those words, he never uses the same combination twice across those three statements. Now, in all three cases, obviously, he's, he's using a metaphor for pastoring the church. Lambs and sheep then would stand for believers, perhaps in different degrees of maturity. And feeding is always a metaphor for teaching the word of God. To feed the sheep never means literally to put food in their mouth. That's how some have turned this statement and out of it constructed a false social justice gospel. Places that spend all their time feeding people and thinking they're fulfilling these words have completely missed the forest for the trees. They're saving the physical body while allowing the soul to go to hell in the end. This is about feeding people with the word of God so that spiritually they can be born again, so they can be saved from eternal judgment and end up in heaven. That, my friends, is feeding. The food will come in time. So Jesus is saying, shepherd my people, pastor my people, and shepherding here is centered on giving people the word of God. Now, he asks essentially the same question all three times. I think the only reason he varies the language is to avoid pure repetition in the way that he speaks to the point. Peter was asked the same question in three different ways as well on the night that he denied Jesus when he was arrested. He never heard the same words three times, but he always gave the same answer. Jesus doesn't give the same question each time either, but he always gets the same answer. So now this is Peter's opportunity to reverse that mistake in like step. And with each response, he's drawn deeper into the role of pastor. He's committed that much more, if you will. With him now restored, Jesus pronounces Peter's future death on a cross and he commands Peter to follow him. Jesus's prediction 
contrasts Peter's youthful independence and impulsiveness to the sobering constraints that come with serving God. I love the way he takes all that we know of the Peter we've seen in these Gospels and acknowledges that's who he is now and says, if you follow me, you will be put in circumstances that constrain that impulsiveness and put you under this burden. Eventually, from church tradition, we're told Peter was crucified. Tertullian and Origen, two early church fathers, both testify that Peter was crucified. Origen says he was crucified head down by his own request. But even more troubling or more sobering than that, consider that Peter lived with this prediction of his own death hanging over his head for over 30 years. For over 30 years, he knew he would go to the cross. And in 1 Peter, this same man wrote that those who suffer death for following Christ bring glory to him in their death. He carried that significant burden faithfully. For all his youthful brashness, he learned patience in the end. John 21:20. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, and Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Once more, and I just love the fact about this gospel that it ends with John focuses on Peter in this unique way. And he records this little quaint moment when Peter questions Jesus over John's future. And that whole exchange sounds like brothers fighting over bedtime or one got in trouble. What about him? He did it, too. Peter just learned that the price of serving Jesus was that he's going to have to face the same death that the master faced, right? And as usual, John's nearby. So as John describes himself, he says, I'm the one Jesus loved. And it's a self-deprecating description, but it probably was also an indication of John's prominence within the group. He's as prominent as Peter is in his own way. So Peter, knowing that, says, well, me being prominent, I have to bear this burden. He wonders if John likewise is going to have to suffer as a result of being another prominent apostle. I like to imagine that after Peter had heard his fate, he glances over Jesus' shoulder to see John in the background kind of looking at him like saying, I'm glad I'm not you. Look what you have to deal with. So Peter gestures to Peter and says, well, what about him? And then Jesus tells Peter, basically, John's future is none of your business. And in fact, what would it matter to you if I didn't want him to ever die? John tells us that was not spoken literally. It was simply to make a point to Peter Though, because John lived longer than any of the other apostles, there was a period of time in the church at the end of the first century while John was still alive that rumors developed saying, because of this moment, John would never die. Of course, those rumors stopped soon after John's death. (laughs) So with that, John ends with this epilogue to the gospel. Verse 24 and 25, he says, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things. And wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. That's a beautiful way to end the last gospel, right? The last writer, having written after the first three were written already, saying, I've added some things, but friends, it's not like I've covered all the gaps. There was still a lot more. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the scene in John's final chapter here weaves together many of the ideas and themes found in the earlier chapters. And I have a list here I'm going to go through just so you can see what I saw. It's interesting, even as I did this teaching tonight, I saw a few more that aren't in my list. So there's more there. So let's see how many you found, but I'm going to just read mine. In verses one through four, darkness giving way to light. Chapter one. 
Verse 2, collecting the first disciples. These are all the same guys that were collected in chapter 1. Verse 2, the town of Cana is mentioned. Verse 3, the apostles are alone on a boat near the shore at night without Jesus. Chapter 6. Verses 4 and again in 12, the sheep know their shepherd only by his voice. Chapter 6. Verse 9, Peter at a charcoal fire with Jesus nearby. The trial in chapter 18. Verse 9, Jesus feeding the disciples with bread and fish miraculously. Chapter 6. Verse 13, Jesus taking the bread and breaking it for the disciples. The Last Supper, chapter 13. Verse 14, Jesus' resurrection is mentioned. That's from chapter 20. Verse 15, Jesus eating fish. That's from chapter 20. Verse 15, Jesus calling his followers sheep. Chapter 6. Verses 15 through 17, Peter's three statements of allegiance, which compared to the three denials in chapter 18. Verse 16, Peter's original name is used, Simon, before it became Peter. Chapter 1. Verse 18, a veiled reference to the coming crucifixion. Jesus made a veiled reference to his coming crucifixion in chapter 12. Verse 19, Jesus calling Peter to follow him. He did the same thing in chapter 1. Verse 20, John described as the one leaning on Jesus' bosom, same as chapter 13. Verse 22, the potential that some believers won't have to see death. That's a reference to the rapture from chapter 14. Verse 22, the return of Jesus for the church. That's also from chapter 14. Verse 24, the testimony of John is a true witness, is from chapter 20. And as I said, I saw three or four more just in the teaching, which I can't remember to tell you what I saw, but they were there. And I think those things exist in Scripture as further evidence to us of its inspired nature to show us that there's a greater mind behind the work than just man. Well, with that, we close the Gospel of John. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the study of John's Gospel. And thank you, Father, for the many things we've learned, the many things that we'll carry with us forever. For as you said, Father, the earth and the heavens will pass away, but the word will never pass away. So what we've buried in our hearts through this study will pay a an eternity of dividends, starting with tomorrow and how we put it to work, Father. We called Peter to follow and to drop the nets and the fish and to seek for, uh, to be a fisherman of people. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, call us in a similar way. We won't necessarily do it the way Peter did. We know that. But there are so many ways in which we can serve you, and there are so many opportunities. So let us go out with that heart and empowered by your spirit to, to glorify your name. Send us home safely, Father, and send us back here in the, in the months to come according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.